0: Amen. Well, we're always in good hands when we, whenever we yield ourselves to the potter's hands. We'll open your Bibles tonight to the book of Jonah. No surprise after what I said this morning, of course, but uh, I'll give you a little time to, to get there. You know, as I thought about the message this morning, I couldn't help but to think that uh, nearly, nearly all of us know what we ought to do. That's seldom the problem. The problem is we, we just don't do it. Uh, we all know that we ought to serve God, uh, but very few actually do that. So what happens when we have no heart for ministry? Well, n- naturally we're not prophets and we can't save for certain, but the one thing we know, it's not going to be good. It's always going to end up bad. And, and so I guess you could say the one thing that definitely will happen is going to be a disaster of some kind. And and I think we see one of the best illustrations of that in the, in the story of Jonah. I... Heard a preacher several years ago make a statement. He said that uh, a Christian cannot know God's will unless their heart is right with God. And my first thought and continuing thought to this very day is, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, That's simply not true. And here's a good example of it. Uh, Jonah knew exactly what God wanted him to do. But he didn't want to do it. And uh, in fact, he tried everything imaginable to, to not do it. And that didn't work out very well, did it? God called Jonah to go to a place he didn't want to go. He called Jonah to minister to a people that he cared absolutely nothing about. And so it just leaps out. At you When you think about this story, that God's purpose was not Jonah's comfort, but rather it was the needs of those people there in Nineveh. And as we talked about this morning, God sends us into all of the world, commands us to preach the gospel to every creature, not because we love them, but because he loves them. That ought to be all of the motivation that we need. So, tonight we're going to look at the story of a man who refused to let God uh, have his way, refused to cooperate with God. And hopefully the bottom line will be that we'll examine ourselves and consider our attitude toward God's will and ask ourselves, are we reluctant to do the will of God? Are we resentful of the will of God? Are we rebellious against the will of God? So, Jonah chapter 1. Tonight we're going to consider Jonah's duty, and we're only going to look at two verses tonight. I said this morning that we're going to be in this study for a, a couple of months, I would suppose, seven or eight messages to get through it. And so tonight we just one look at the first two verses. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Meteai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. This little book is really amazing. It is so amazing that a lot of the critics have decided that in their little peanut brain, that this must be fiction. That some of the things that we're told in Jonah just doesn't make sense to them, and so they try to explain it away. Well, it's just a, a story. But what we need to remember is these are the very same people that deny the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that deny His resurrection deny His miracles, deny the deity of Christ, deny the fact that Christ is going to come back to earth again. So it's obvious they don't know what they're talking about. And whenever we, whenever we examine the story, all we have to do is to look at the fact that Jesus Christ Himself confirmed the authenticity of this event There in Matthew chapter number 12, where he refers to it as an actual historical fact. And so it's, you know, not so much a matter of what you're going to believe, but who you're going to believe. Paul said, I know in whom I have believed. Now, Paul knew what he believed, but that wasn't the point. He's saying, I know in whom I have believed. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed what Christ said. And we have, to, we have to arrive at that same conclusion. It's what the Lord says and not what the critics say. Now, in the first chapter here, we're going to consider the prodigal prophet. When we get to the next chapter, we're going to consider the praying prophet. And then chapter 3, the preaching prophet. And then, well, when we get to chapter 4, we're going to be studying about the pouting prophet. But tonight, I want you to consider Jonah's duty. And uh, notice, notice first of all, who he was. Look at verse number 1 again. Jonah, the son of of Amittai. Most people don't realize it. But Jonah was already a famous prophet. If you go back to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, verse 25, you don't need to turn there unless you just want to, but here's what you learn. You learn that he had already successfully predicted the restoration of Israel's coast. That was back during the reign of Jeroboam, and he had predicted that the coast area was going to be restored to Israel. And so everybody already knows about Jonah. He is a famous man from the standpoint of Israel at least, but notice that his past success did not relieve him of his present duty. You know, it's real easy for us to rest on our laurels, real easy for us to think about, you know, what we, what we've already done and neglect what we ought to be doing or stop thinking about the things that we should do in the future. And so here was a man that had already made a name for himself, as it were, by successfully prophesying the restoration of the coast, so this is who we're talking about. But notice he's identified here as the son of of a and this is a man. The word literally means truth. It is a word that uh, that, that identifies a small town in Gehepher. And uh, so, notice whenever he names Jonah, now here 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 is a man from a city called the Truth. And here is a man that is concerned about his child, and so he gives him the name of Jonah that means dove. Now, in those days, it was a very common thing for people to uh, give their children a name that they hoped would in some way uh, uh, have some identifying characteristics of what their child was to become. You know, whenever you think about different names and you... A lot of times people even today will name their child after some maybe famous entertainer, great baseball player, you know, whatever it is, uh, uh, probably because they're trying to live vicariously through them and they want to, you know, mold them and make them into, into their own image. But in those days it was a common thing to give your child a name Uh, that would identify with the characteristics of a certain animal, or in this case, a, a bird. Now, this really becomes significant whenever you start thinking about what the Lord told the disciples. You'll notice that the Lord had told the disciples, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of the wolves. Now, you know, that very statement, automatically, something about it just doesn't sound right. Because usually... Whenever we think about wolves and sheep, we think about the wolves getting in in the midst of the sheep, right? And becoming a danger to the flock of sheep. But the Lord said, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of the wolves. That tells me that as God's people, we're outnumbered. It tells me that He sends us into dangerous places. But he, he he makes this statement in, in conjunction with that. Matthew 10, verse 16, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents, and here it is, and harmless as doves. And when we think of a dove, we automatically think about the harmlessness of a dove and the peacefulness of a dove. We even have doves at weddings. I I remember years ago growing up in Missouri, and it was easy to go out and uh, talk to any farmer about going hunting, go rabbit hunting or squirrel hunting or quail hunting or whatever. But a good number of those people warned you, we do not allow dove hunting there was something in their mind of a religious significance, I guess, and uh, they revered the dove to the extent they didn't want you shooting the doves. Now, if you know anything about Texas, (laughs) doves are, uh, you know, open season, as it were. We don't think much about shooting them and rather enjoy it, in fact. But the point is... Here is a man who brings a son into this world, and he has certain expectations, certain desires and hopes and dreams that he envisions for that child. And you know, I think that's a good lesson for all of us when we think about our children, that we ought to desire something for them exceptional. And by that, I'm talking about being exceptional in a spiritual sense, that we ought to desire to see them grow up loving the Lord and serving the Lord, and we ought to do what we can to cultivate that. I was thinking this morning, Nick was over there, back behind there on the the banjo, and Eric was on the... On the electric guitar over there, and Brother well, Dennis was up here and and on the drums, and Russell was on the bass and and Zach was on the on the drums. Did I get that right and we our our fiddle, fiddle violin player wasn 't here, and our our accordion player and uh who ricky Ricky king's usually on those bongo drums or whatever you call them you know. And as I sat there and I got to thinking this morning about all of that and Eric said he was helping Nick and coaching him and playing the banjo and I, I can remember when Brother, brother Hamlin, uh, Dennis, was learning to play the guitar and uh, no doubt somebody helped him with that. But I can remember when he just started out with that and, and you just heard on that last song what he's able to do with the guitar now. And I remember when Russell... Didn't know anything about playing the bass guitar. I'm saying all of that for a reason, folks. We need, listen, we need to do what we can to encourage our children in a direction that they will be useful in the Lord's work someday. Because all of those other things, I could remember the, (laughs) we, boy, you wouldn't believe how many times Bev and I moved the first. 15, 20 years that we were married, it was wow. Uh, It was shocking. And I can remember packing up all of those trophies, bowling and uh, and, uh, 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 baseball trophies and softball trophies and all that. boy, every time we'd move, I had to make sure I got all of those trophies. Boy, they were so important. You know, each time we moved, uh, some of them would get broken a little bit. And finally the day came that I don't even know what happened to them because they become totally meaningless to me. And none of that effort I put into those games ever helped me in any way whatsoever when it came to serving the Lord. And I think we need to do what we can to instill in the minds of our young people our desire for them to become Something special, as it were, when it comes to God's work. I, I, I just feel certain that that's what Jonah's daddy had in mind when he gave him a name that meant dove. I want you to have that quality. I want you to be associated with being a man of peace. I, I want you to, you know, to be like that. And, and that's exactly what Christ wants for us be wise as serpents, but harmless. As doves. So this gives us a little idea of who he was. But now I want you to notice where he was sent. And he tells us in verse number two arise and go to Nineveh. Now that was on the eastern bank of the, uh, the Tigris River, right across from Mosul, just across it. Wasn't you in Mosul, Jason? You what? I'm sorry? south of Mosul where you where you were located there. And so uh, this is the area that we're talking about. It, it helps us to understand if we first understand something about this city. The first thing, maybe the most important thing, is this city was built by Nimrod. You remember him? Nimrod is the fellow that really, you know, we keep talking about a one-world government and a one-world church And we all know what the Bible teaches about man's efforts to create a one world government and a one world church. Well, this is where it all got its start. It's after the flood and Nimrod decides, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take some measures that we will be able to escape any future judgment. So he begins to build a tower. He called those tires ziggurats. and uh, they, and there's a lot of things we could say about that I won't get into. But he builds the tower and uh, it's, a, it's a united effort uh, among the people in order to avert the judgment of God. He said, we're going to build this tire so high it'll get up above the high water mark in case another flood comes. Well, uh, the idiot ought to have enough brains to know God had already promised it wasn't going to destroy the world again with the flood. But he didn't understand that. But, so anyway, you know the story. God came down and confounded the languages. And so this is what the place that we call the Babel. And Nimrod, that was the brains behind the lame brain idea. And so this is the man who also established Nineveh. And it became, in Jonah's day, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. That was the world's greatest power at that time, the enemy of Israel. It was called the robber city because it robbed others in order to enrich itself. And, of course, the Ninevites were typical sinners in every age, including this one, who live only to please themselves. In the book of Nahum, the prophet said in chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the bloody city! In Zephaniah 2.15 it says, This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly and then said in her heart, I am and there is none beside me. What an attitude. However, that's not to say that they were without religion. If you really want to study about Nineveh, there is so much that you can read about Nineveh. And Nineveh was a, a very religious place, but it was a different kind of religion. It was a religion of their own creation. It was the center of fertility worship. In other words, they involved sex into their worship. And so it's the center of fertility worship. One writer said, in its splendor, now think about this, in its splendor it was probably more magnificent than Babylon. Boy, when I think of that, I always think about the story of Daniel. And when I preach from Daniel, I give a description of Babylon and the hanging gardens, and what that was like, but here is a historian that tells us that Nineveh was even more magnificent than Babylon was, but he goes on to say in its sinfulness, it is possibly even more wicked than Sodom. so this is the kind of place and the kind of people we 're talking about let me let me uh Let me just read, and this is quite long, but I I want to read it because I want you to get the picture of the kind of people that God is sending Jonah to. This is by John Eugelhart many years ago, and he said, quote, No considerations of pity were permitted to stand in the way of Assyrian policy. It could not afford to garrison uh, let, me, let me back up here. It could not afford to garrison its conquest, and it practiced a plan which largely dispensed with the necessity for leaving garrisons behind the Assyrian armies. There was unsparing slaughter to begin with. Uh, the, the kings seemed to gloat in their inscriptions over the spectacle presented by the field of battle. They describe how it was followed up by fiendish inflictions upon individual cities. The leading men as it and and Sennacherib had conquered that city were led forth, seized by the executioners, subjected to various punishments, all of them filled to the brim with horror. Some of the victims were held down while one of the band of torturers who are portrayed upon their monuments, gloating fiendishly over their fearful work, inserts his hand into the victim's mouth, grips his tongue, and wrenches it out by its roots. In another, Spot pegs were driven into the ground, and to these another victim's wrists are fixed with cords. His ankles are similarly made fast, and the man is stretched out, unable to move a muscle. The executioner then applies himself to the task, and beginning at the accustomed spot, the sharp knife makes its incision. The skin is raised inch by inch until the man is flayed alive. These skins are then stretched out, Upon the city walls and otherwise disposed of so as to terrify the people and leave behind long enduring impressions of Assyrian vengeance. For other Uh, Long, sharp poles are prepared. The sufferers are taken out like all of the rest from the leading men of the city, is laid down. The sharpening of the pole is driven in through the lower part of the chest. The pole is then raised, bearing the uh, the writhing victims aloft, and it is planted in a hole, dug for it, and the man left to die. Let me give you one more quote from another historian. As he describes the cruelty of these people... Pyramids of human heads marked the path of the conquerors. Boys and girls were burned alive to reserve for a worse fate. Men were impaled, flayed alive, uh, blinded or deprived of their hands and feet or their ears and noses while women and children were carried into slavery. The captured city plundered and reduced to ashes, and the trees in its neighborhood cut down. Now, Now, with all of that in mind... Who would like to go with Jonah to Nineveh? Anybody want to go on a mission trip like that? You know, it's getting so bad that a lot of the churches have decided to cease sending mission groups down into Mexico because of the drug cartel there and the danger of going there and so forth. And there was a time that churches used to send their their youth groups down into Mexico, help build church buildings and help minister to people and things of that nature. But now the danger of it is such that, you know, they're reluctant to do that. But when we think about a place like this, it's just almost unimaginable. And to think about finding a volunteer, someone willing to go, you know, into the very face of persecution like that, and, and you know, I think, given a choice, all of us would choose that which is a pleasant place instead of something fraught with danger. And uh, again, I say, God's purpose, God's plan was not to make Jonah comfortable or to make his service enjoyable. We live in a day where I'm afraid that we've tried to turn Christianity into entertainment. We are told that we cannot really stand hard and fast for the truth because, well, people are just not going to accept that. I learned just the other day of another church removing Baptist from its name. I, I, I don't understand that because whenever you understand the Baptist heritage and what the name stands for and the fact that we didn't even give ourselves that name but rather our enemies, you know, they're the ones that gave us that name because they hated our guts and despised us and persecuted us and so called us rebaptizers and what have you. But what I'm saying is the whole idea behind that is We'll make our church more acceptable. And then someone else comes along and says, well, if we really, if we really want to, you know, not be offensive to people, we've got we to take that word blood out of the hymnals, you know. Sing about, there's power in the blood and stuff like that. And they've literally done that in some places. And I could go on and on and on. I don't think I need to because you know that in regards to a lot of churches that nowadays it's nothing more than a bunch of entertainment. There's there's no instruction from the Word of God. There's no rightly divided into the Word of Truth. There's no challenge for for uh, for duty and Christian responsibility and on and on and on. God's purpose is not to make us enjoy life. Should we have joy? Absolutely. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We ought to be a joyful people. We have something to rejoice in, but our rejoicing is to be in the Lord. And that doesn't mean that we are to arrange circumstances in life so as to make ourselves happy. Serving God has always been difficult. Sometimes we think about and we talk a lot about the perilous times in which we live. That word means difficult and dangerous and Paul said such times would come and we believe they're, they're up on us and, you know, we remember going out on visitation door to door and, and there was a time when we didn't think anything about that. And now we live in a day where it's a frightening prospect to send people out door to door because you have no idea what they're going to be confronted with and the danger that they're going to encounter. But listen, as bad as it is now, it's not nearly as bad as it has been, and it's not nearly as bad as it's going to be. We must not excuse ourselves from duty uh, with the attitude that we've got to keep ourselves safe. God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. So notice, I want you to go to Nineveh. That's the place. These are the people I want you to minister to. But now I want you to notice what he's called to do there in verse number 2. Cry against it. Let me just jump over, and I'm not going to comment much, if any, at all, but I just want to read chapter 3 in the first four verses. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a days' journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Wow. Can you imagine going into a place like that and saying in forty days God's going to destroy this place? Why? Because God said their wickedness has come up before me. You know... That tells me that God takes notice of what 's going on in the world; their wickedness has come up before me. Remember He said to Israel, Be sure your sins will find you out. Nothing is hidden from God. Nothing escapes his sight and uh, when we think about America and what 's going on in america I, I, I just I just learned this last week and and I didn't read it all, and I think it applies to ordained preachers that are in some way associated with, uh, with either the jails and prisons. And, uh, but, but anyway, those associated and approved by the state of Kentucky, that they no longer can, can uh, denounce homosexuality. They cannot call it a sin. If they call it a sin, they are immediately fired from their position. Let me tell you, that's just the beginning. This, that's just the start. And this is going to grow and grow and grow. It's going to snowball in our nation if God doesn't do something to put a stop to it. These are the times that we live in. And, and, and when he sends Jonah there, he says, I want you to go there. And notice we think, well, maybe this is a goodwill tour. You know, maybe, you want, maybe God wants me to go there and say, y'all, you know, you, you, you really need to think about my religion because God has a wonderful plan for your life. He loves you, has this wonderful plan for your life. Now, I, Jonah, you know, might have aspired to go if that had been the message, but that's not it at all. He wants Jonah to go there with a mission of condemnation and a mission of warning that he is going to that he is going to judge the the place in forty days It's going to be destroyed and by the way i don 't know whether you realized it or not, but he did not even include i 'm going to destroy this place unless you repent he just said i 'm going to destroy it and so as far as they know, as far as they know that's that 's what God is going to do. When I think about the challenge that we have and the fact that so many times that that fear enter into our response to God's commands, in other words, we fail to respond and do the things we should because we, we are afraid. Now, whenever we think about facing people like those in Nineveh, that's one kind of fear. But I was talking earlier about the fact people learning to play musical instruments, and I know in Nick's case in playing the vangels, when he didn't want the mic on him yet, you know, because, hey, you know, he's probably going to make some mistakes. He's just learning. But you'd be surprised how many people won't do anything to serve the Lord because they are afraid that, you know, somebody's somebody's going to make fun of them. They're afraid. And so many times we're afraid to launch out and to do something for God because we're afraid. Oh, my. You know, if I give that missionary that much money, then I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to have any to do this or to do that. And so it gets down to fear. We try to dignify fear by calling it worry and anxiety, you know, but basically it's just fear of some sort or another. And so that no doubt enters into the thinking of Jonah that when I go there, there's a good chance I'm not going to be coming back. Now, there's some other reasons we're going to talk about later on, but this has got to enter into his thinking. But notice the command. He says, Arise... And go, arise and go. That tells me for one thing he's to get up from where he is and to leave the place where he is at. Now going is one thing, leaving where you're at is another thing. I often think about Abraham when God spoke to Abraham and said, Abe, I want you to go into a land that I will show you. There's no details given you know no re- no motel reservations made nothing like that I, just get up and go 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 home tell sarah sweetheart we're pack your bags we're moving out and we I don't know where but we're going to move we're going to hit the road god's going to direct us and show us where he wants us to go it takes a lot of faith to do something like that right I mean, just start out to an unknown place. And by the way, whenever I think about Jonah, whenever he says, Arise and go, that is that word, go, to Nineveh. And all of a sudden, the fear grips his heart. He might have been thinking about, I've got some preacher friends I won't mention, and over the years, there's a certain little spot in Texas to where when they retire they like to cluster to this little place. And I won't mention it because you'd know who I was talking about. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, look, I'm not blaming them. I shouldn't have even injected that into the message. But a lot of times the whole thought is that whenever we leave one thing and go to another, that we ought to always be improving, taking a step up. If we change churches, we ought to be going to a bigger congregation, a higher salary, more prestige, and things of that nature. Uh, Brother Larry Jones, who pastors over in Santa Fe, until today, in case some of you didn't know, Brother Larry called me here a while back, and uh, before he had announced it to anyone, and I remember Larry as a little teenager up in Kansas City area there, and uh, before he ever thought about preaching and and anyway, Larry has resigned the church over there and taken on a new ministry that has to do with raising money for mission work for the for the orphanage down there in Mexico and other orphanages that need help and what have you and, and he'll probably be here telling us about that. Let me tell you, it's a fearful thing for a preacher to pull up, you know, his stakes and to uh, move away from a Church where the people love you and the people support you and you've got a nice home and, you know, all of that, and uh, think about leaving that kind of security. Uh, I think about the, back to the different times that, and, and I'm certain there have been times that, you know, Bev and the kids, they didn't under, really understand it. They, they really couldn't because, you know, God laid it on my heart. That we need to leave here and, and we need to go somewhere else, and, and, and I always knew where the somewhere else was. By the way, because God had laid it on my heart. Okay, I want you to, I want you to leave this area and move to Texas. Well, here we are. But let me tell you, there's always some fear that has to be faced and conquered in doing that and whether you're the pastor of a church whether you are a famous prophet like Jonah was or whoever you are if you're ever going to do anything for the Lord you have to overcome those fears it might be you know the fear of of uh of, uh, of not getting a good education you'd be surprised how many how many kids are still living in the nest at home instead of out there Pursuing a career and and you know making a place for themselves in this world because they are afraid to launch out of the nest and uh, that fear will absolutely ruin your life. Now he said, Jonah, I want you to arise and I want you to go. And you might be here tonight thinking, well, I was hoping this message would have something to do with me. Well, you're in luck. Because this does. You remember in the Great Commission, what does the Lord tell us to do? Well, He tells us to do exactly the same thing. He tells us to go into all of the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. That's the responsibility of each and every one of us, to get the gospel message out any way we can. Now, obviously, all of us can't go into all of the world or any one of us. We, you know, have to go to one geographical location at a time. You know, we're not omnipresent like God is But as a group in this world, it ought to be our desire to see that the gospel is preached into all of the world. And to do that effectively, we have to overcome those fears associated with making sacrifices that's necessary to get the job done. I love the way Paul put it when he said, We are ambassadors, we are the ambassadors of Christ. When you think about an ambassador, you're thinking about somebody that represents a different government. Now, think with me here, and especially think about the fact that as an ambassador, this world is not your home. You're just passing through this old world. Heaven is your home, and you are representing a different kingdom. Amen? The kingdom of God. You know, sometimes we... uh I think some people, and by the way, I'm with Lee Greenwood. I'm proud to be an American. So don't, don't for a moment think that I am making light of that fact. But I've got to tell you, I'm more thankful for the fact that I'm a part of the kingdom of God. That's more important than being a citizen of the United States. So we, we're going into the world as the ambassadors of Christ. Well, what are we doing? What is our mission? What is our goal? Well, Paul describes it there in that same place. He says, He has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is bringing two opposing parties together so as to, to have peace. Peace just so happens Jonah's name means dove that represents peace, and he's sent into this hellish place to go there with a message from God. And you and I as Christians, we are the ambassadors of Christ, and God has given us the gospel which is a message that brings about reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God. I said this morning it's a wonderful thing to think about the fact that as Christians we have it within us. The ability to raise other people up to a higher standard of living. That's a wonderful thing, but even more wonderful than that, as Christians we have a message that will bring people, lost, hell-deserving sinners, into the family of God. And we dare not refuse God's command to go into all of the world. We often talk about that those verses there in Matthew 28 as the great commission. And it is a commission, but we need to think of it as a command. It's not something that is optional. It's not something that God is saying, you know, I sure wish you would do this. We're either doing it or we're living in rebellion against God. Like old Brother Murray, I believe it was many years ago, said, there's only two classes of Christians, just two. They're soul winners and backsliders. And we need to think about that. Which one are we? Are we backslidden to the point that we're not making any effort to reach others for Christ? Or are we doing our best to bring others to a place of reconciliation between them? And God, so they can experience peace with God and the peace of God. Don't run from God. It doesn't pay. I've had a lot of people that have asked, why is it God's not calling more young men to the ministry today? Well, you know, in the first place, who who said He isn't? I haven't received any divine revelation where God says, you know, I'm cutting back on the call to ministry. You know, I really don't think that's the problem. I think the real problem is God's still calling young men into the ministry for whatever reason, they're just not going I love what David Brainerd said. David Brainerd was the son-in-law to the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards, but David Brainerd was his own man. He was a missionary to the American Indians and an amazing man. If you've never read the diary of David Brainerd, you ought to, you ought to do that. But here's a statement that he made, and I'm through. He said, "'I cared not where or how I lived.'" How many people do you know that could honestly say something like that? I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I endured so that I could but gain souls for Christ. Wow. You just don't see that that spirit, that attitude very often. What made David Brainerd the great servant of God he was? That's it right there. What made Paul the man that he was? It's the fact that he said in Philippians 1 and verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How do we become that kind of a person? Well, Lisa sang about it a while ago. It's submitting ourself into the hands of the potter and letting him take us and mold us and make us into the servants that he wants us to be. It never pays to run from God. Let's stand together. Father, I pray you'll speak to our hearts tonight and forgive us of the times that for whatever reason that we've been reluctant to obey your call that, Lord, the times that we have resisted your will for our life, the times that we have turned back when we should have pushed ahead, the times when we've ignored the, the, the needs of those that are around us that are lost and undone. And, Lord, help us to just do everything within our power to sow the seed of the gospel to those that we come in contact with that some way, somehow that you might use our feeble efforts to bring them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And Lord, if there's one here tonight that's never received Christ as their Savior, Lord, help them to understand that you love them so much that you gave your Son who shed his blood for the remission of their sins. May they trust him tonight. And may each one of us tonight be determined within our hearts that by your grace we'll do our very best to fulfill your will for our life, even, even if it means leaving our comfort zone and going into a field of service that's going to be difficult and fearful. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.